It's Thursday, October 15th, 2020. I'm Tanya Harris, and welcome to TMI Daily, your daily roundup of everything people are talking about online since they aren't allowed to talk about it in person. Early today, more than 100 Hollywood actors, directors, producers, and showrunners sent an open letter to NBC sharing their outrage that the network would give Donald Trump a televised town hall in direct competition with ABC's Joe Biden town hall. Clearly, NBC doesn't get the difference between counter-programming and counter-productive programming. People online are also sharing their frustration that the hashtag BoycottNBC is trending, which is interesting since according to ratings, most TV viewers started boycotting NBC around the time Friends went off the air 16 years ago. Last night, Twitter and Facebook blocked a potentially false New York Post story that claimed a hacked computer proves that Hunter Biden had arranged a meeting between his father, Joe Biden, and one of the heads of the controversial youth Ukraine company Burisma while Biden was still vice president. Trump immediately jumped into the controversy by saying, today they censor the New York Post. Who's next? Russia? In an article published yesterday, Melania Trump said that her son, Barron, also was diagnosed with the coronavirus. This sent shockwaves through the adult Trump children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don, who thought that after decades of sucking up, they were going to be the ones to get something from daddy. Ice Cube announced that he is not a pawn for Trump after the campaign claimed that he's working with them on an African-American initiative called the Platinum Plan. In a statement, the actor slash hip hop artist said he was willing to work with either party as long as they can establish trust. This leaves the coveted people who still think Ice Cube is relevant vote up for grabs. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary changed its definition of sexual preference, listing the term as offensive following Amy Coney Barrett's use of the term during her confirmation hearings. Webster's is also considering a change to the definition of hypocrite, but hasn't decided which Republican senator's picture to put next to it. IKEA canceled their U.S. buyback program and instead is hoping to build a new sustainable eco-friendly structure here. Let's just hope the directions for this build are a lot clearer than the ones for their furniture. NBC suppressed Demi Lovato's vote message when performing her anti-Trump song on the Billboard Music Awards last night. This was an unnecessary move since the best way to censor a message is to hide it in yet another award show nobody is watching. The Tony Award nominations were announced this morning with the Alanis Morissette-based musical Jagged Little Pill leading the field with 15 nominations. Ironically, this is a bitter little pill to swallow for anyone hoping to see these shows before 2022, if ever. MTV announced that Jersey Shore Family Vacation will be returning for a fourth season in November with the show being filmed in a safety conscious bubble in Las Vegas. Considering all the things this cast caught at the Jersey Shore, who would even think COVID could stand a chance? Now let's send it over to tonight's TMI Daily cast and crew roundtable. Stay safe. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of TMI Daily. I'm Veronica Aiello and as always I'm joined by some of my TMI Hollywood family. Oh and happy National I Love Lucy Day. So in honor of my comedy queen I'm wearing my Vitamita Vegemin shirt. Let's start with you Pete. 
Happy. Who makes these days up? I, I, I need to know that. I still, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Just saying. Joe. Hi to all my friends that are listening to us on Google Podcasts. It's also very happy shawarma day. So I have my Avengers shawarma background on today. <laughs> and Emma. Hey, y'all. How you doing? As long as it's not an official government thing, I think anybody can make a holiday. You just have to get enough hashtags trending for it. I think that's how it works. I think you're oh right. Oh, my gosh. Oh. We got to make we got to make an Emma cursing day. Yeah, that would be <laughs> Every <a> day. <laughs> that's like a month. So later no, on- no, but I want a day where Emma can curse and I don't get a parking ticket. So... <laughs> <laughs> So later on in the show, we're going to be joined by journalist and host of the podcast, Life on Planet Earth, John Aiden Byrne. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Okay, so let's get started with today's show. On March 12th, as the threat of the oncoming oncoming pandemic began to take hold of New York, Broadway did something it did not do in 1918 at the height of the Spanish flu outbreak. It closed its doors. Twice it hoped to reopen first on April 12th, and then on May 30th. Neither happened as the Broadway League decided to keep theaters closed now through the end of May 2021. Today, the Tony Awards were announced with shows like Jagged Little Pill and Moulin Rouge leading the way in nominations. Although depending on how long this crisis lasts, few may, even, few may ever get the chance to see these or the other shows nominated. Tonight, we thought it would be a good time to discuss the future of theater. Firstly, I imagine that since we are all personally affected by the loss of live theater, such as our show, TMI, that this hits particularly close to home for us. Am I right to say that? Sure. So so two weeks ago, the Broadway League announced that its theaters would stay closed until the earliest June 1st of next year. Do you think June 1st is a realistic target date? And if not, why? Who wants to start? Let's start with you, Joe. I think if if you see a vaccine, it's a good start. But I think you're still going to be running a theater like you see, um, you know, maybe a 25% or a 50% or something. You'll still see social distancing in the theater. But I think it's all going to basically depend on if there's a vaccine or not. I think that's your major thing that you'd be looking at. And then like a vaccine like by when? When you say that. Well, by the spring, in order for you to be able to do that for the summer. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Emma. I, the vaccine might factor into it. Uh, I think that one of the big things there is that these are all theaters in New York. So, you know, New York has been really good right now. They've got a positivity rate on testing of like under 1% and they're being very careful about who can travel into the state and like how long you've got a quarantine from different places. Uh, if New York were to keep that up and were to keep that positivity rate so low, and they were also clear about like who, who like everyone has to wear a mask and like you're only doing it at 25 to 50% capacity, it's not an impossible date. I don't necessarily think that they definitely will open on June 1st, but I think that's like a reasonable day to like look for and say like we'll make a decision again then. Now, before I go to you, Pete, because of what Emma just said, you actually kind of, you know, got into my second question. Like, do you think it's going to go by, you know, city to city basis, depending on what city we're in? So um, that was my next question. But go ahead, Pete. Well, I mean, the, the one thing that you have to take into consideration, Emma said, well, that well, it's New York. But the problem is New Yorkers aren't the ones that are driving most of the theater business in New York. I, I mean, they're a percentage of it. So 
if New York has zero cases um, of coronavirus, but most of the other, the rest of the country is at 7% um, infection rate, 10% infection rate, it's still not going to make it possible for New York to open up its theaters, especially now. I think there's 38 states in the country that are on some kind of tra- uh, some kind of travel restriction into New York at the moment. So, I, I mean, I'd love to believe that that you'd get to May 31st and then magically we reopen theaters, but it just it doesn't sound even even likely. I mean, Fauci said today that best case scenario um, that April of next year is when we should start seeing vaccines rolling out now there's 330 million people in the country it's going to take several months to get to everybody and that's only a first round vaccine and then the bigger question you know isn't just you know once people have gotten vaccinated um can we reopen theaters it's once people get vaccinated are they still going to be ready to go to theaters are people going to want to to to, to do it yet which which to me I, I mean like i'm always thinking about what we do our show and i can't imagine any scenario where people get a vaccine and then immediately say, okay, I'm fine now, let me go back to the way my life was before, you know, because I think there's going to be a period of time of people staying staying safe, or at least hopefully staying safe and saying, let's see how this works out. Let's see if, if the case loads drop, if people are, you know, are not getting sick any longer, if there's less deaths, and then they might start. So I think even if you get a vaccine and, and everybody in the country has, you know, you know, has it by, let's say, the end of the summer, you're still three months beyond that before you could have any measurable amount of people in a a confined space where they're going to feel comfortable to do it. So to me, they may try to open. I I don't think May 31st is probably the time, maybe September 1st. But I think that realistically, you're talking about 2022. See, and I think I have to disagree with you, Pete, in a sense where... um, how you're saying that people might just not feel ready just because they have a vaccine to go out there. Because I think a lot of people, like even people that were really taking really good care of themselves earlier in the year when the pandemic first started, at least people that I know, I've seen them kind of get into like the funk where they have to go out and they're starting to be less careful. And that's without a vaccine. So no, no, I, to, I agree. I know that there's going to be people that are going to want to do it. But the, but the thing is, I can see a that's lot of still people a minority of people. I, I mean, the majority of people, we're talking about 70, 75% of people are, are not rushing to go back to normal life because they know normal life is not something that we're going to have, you know, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, maybe. And, and so if, if you're saying that there's 30%, even if you said 50% of people would say tomorrow, yeah, let's go back to the way things were, that's still not enough to sustain you know, shows that are costing something, something in the average of, I think it's like 200,000 a night or more, more just, just to do these shows. And I, I just, and there might be a few shows that will take the bullet and say, well, you know, like a Hamilton will say, well, we'll open because we'll sustain it because we've already got money in the bank and we already have enough of a reputation that people might come mm-hmm. to see us. But there's a lot of shows. There's not going to be new shows that are going to say, hey, let me, let, let me open up um, on June 1st or on September 1st and hope for the best that people are going to come see us. Sure, because I'm going to I'm going to meet my doctor the morning of in front of the Disneyland gates, so he can give me the shot, so I can walk right through. Yeah, but again, you <laughs> might you might be the, you might be the exception to the rule, Joel. I mean, it's still well, it's just it's but, just but we don't have a rule. Peter, you're you're making up a whole bunch of statistics. Let let's say thirty percent. Let's say fifty percent. Those aren't like real numbers. You're making those up. 
The fact is we don't know how many people would feel comfortable or not feel comfortable. We just don't have those studies. What I do know is that the shows that have managed to go on any kind of outdoor comedy, outdoor theater, outdoor performances, people flock to those. And uh, whenever things open up and people do think that they're safe, even if they're a little bit wrong, but whenever like bars or whatever do open up, people fill those up like that as well. Yeah, I'm not saying that every theater is going to be I was to capacity say. from day one. See, but, so if me... you've got, but if you've got, uh, say, 25% capacity and the show is willing to do like a concert version of something so it's a lot cheaper, uh, and New Yorkers, you know, are just as cooped up as we are, they also want to go out and do things. If they have an option to do something, they're going to do it. But, but about, do you think, it? do you think... Like, because I'm going to explain like how they wanted to do the theme parks. I would assume Broadway would at least start the same way. Do you think that just having people being able to come from the 120 mile radius, if you put a pin in Manhattan and say only people within 120 miles of, of Manhattan can go to the theater, do you think that they could sustain Broadway? No. Because that's what they wanted to do out here with the theme no. parks. They were like, yeah, we'll open it, but only you have to live within 120 miles of the theme park. And, see, like, and, and here's the problem. And I think that this is the thing that we're, we're, we're all kind of not, not talking about is that you can, you can only sustain something like, like a Broadway show for so long on discounts and on, on lower price tickets to get people in the room. The, the problem is that, that Broadway for all intents and purposes, and, and, and not just Broadway, but, but major theater in, in every, in every big state, whether it be like out here with the Amundsen, or, or with, you know, or with uh, any of the other city, the Pantages, um, or places in other parts of the country. It's, it's not a poor person's um, event. It's something that people with money are more than likely going to be your, your, your main consumer. And the one thing, if you look at all the studies, people with money are less likely to, to risk their, their health um, during the pandemic. And, and because of that, I think you're, you're, you're you know, if again, and I, yeah, you're right, I'm making up, I'm making up 30%, 50%, whatever the percentage is, I don't know, because we won't know until next year. But when you're talking about people that have money that drive the economy, drive the economy, in, especially in a, in a theater sense, you know, if they're not willing to come out yet, then, then there's no point. I mean, because you can just do so many, you know, tour groups from Kansas um, to, to, to fill a space and, and then sooner or later, you're going to lose that money. And, 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 and again, the one thing I've been told from the few people that I do speak to out here who do theater is that this is no time for somebody who hasn't already a proven product to try and to try and consider mounting a show sometime in the, in, in the foreseeable future, because you have to have something that people are going to are already gonna have familiarity with if they're going to walk into a day one. It's going to be those things that are going to sell. Yeah, it's going to be the Hamiltons of the world that are going to get theater back. Um, Whereas I think like, you know, something, something like uh, today, you got Jagged Little, P Little Pill, Moulin Rouge and the Tina Turner um, musical that all got nominated for Best Musical. I don't know if any one of those three shows have had a big enough audience impact yet to actually create the kind of excitement. Well, number one, if they're even going to be available to still do this, you know, by, by you know, either the summer or the fall next year. But number two, if they did, if they opened their doors and all of a sudden people were so so excited to see them because of the fact that they didn't see them before. I just don't know that. I mean, for what it's worth, I don't, I don't think any of us are talking about mounting new shows. And uh, what you just listed was one adaptation and two jukebox musicals, which tend to do very well because they are known properties. Because people know, oh, I like the music of Tina Turner. Oh, I love the movie Moulin Rouge. 
So those tend to do very well. I'm not yeah. saying they necessarily would 100% do well on June 1st. Uh, but I think that like, if in terms of like what shows are going to go up, those are going to be among them. Uh, I also think that we're not talking about indefinite sustainability. I think we're looking at maybe a brief opening, seeing what sales are like. And if the vaccine comes out by say August, maybe it is sustainable until then. And then people start getting the vaccine. You can go closer to normal life. Well, don't get me wrong. I hope you're right. I, I really honestly do. Because because to me, not having having our, the opportunity to do what we do is is bothersome. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not sitting around saying, "Oh God, I really hope we can't go to a theater show for for the next year." But at the same time, I'm I'm also being kind of realistic about it that there's probably a, a very good chance, maybe the fall. I mean, may I mean again, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully, I'm wrong. But it, it's really not out of the realm of possibilities that we're talking about the fall. And that's well, we're all talking about possibilities anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so like, I listen, I don't 100% definitely think that Broadway will open on June 1st. I just don't think it's such an insane possibility that something could. I, again, I hope you're right. So there's been some thoughts on how theaters can still work during the pandemic. And Joe, I know you brought up a scenario like with, you know, what they're planning on doing with theme parks. Have you guys heard of any other um, plans that are already being um, implemented or are being considered? Now, I can speak for the Amundsen Theater here. Um, Peter and I are both members of CTGLA. And um, I remember back in May, we got an email when they thought they were going to be reopened in September. One of the thoughts that they said that they were thinking about doing was obviously, you know, keeping seats apart and filling the theater only to 50% capacity. Um, but other than that, that's all I've, I've heard. And again, this was in, back in May when they thought we were going to reopen. They were going to reopen in September. So, have you guys heard any other things that they can do? Pete, let's start with you. Well, I, I mean, probably one of the roadmap um, places as far as like things that could possibly be done now is the Geffen Playhouse. Um, they they back in May decided that they weren't going to be uh, just giving up uh, all business because of the pandemic. So they they kind of rebranded themselves as the, as the uh, Geffen Stayhouse. Um, and, and then they started doing a show called The Presence, which was it's basically just an elaborate magic show, but um, it just closed um, this past weekend and it had done 251 shows and every one of them sold out. Now it was only 25 people on Zoom a night, but it was every one of the shows was sold out. They actually had standing room for shows that they couldn't, that they, you know, if you if somebody backed out at the last second, which I don't know how you back out of a Zoom show. <laughs> I mean, except maybe ours. Um, but but yeah, they um the the um, they actually did it and it worked. Now, I mean, whether or not that's so virtual theater, theater, I don't know. Well, sorry? Now is that considered virtual theater? Yes, right? Because you're doing it online. Well, I mean, the theater is theater in my book. I mean, if you're acting, yeah. if it's on stage, it's theater, regardless of whether right. you're going to see it. Mm -hmm. Joe, um, uh, an example could be uh, like there's two different ones that I've seen. One of them I'm actually going to go to a theme park thing because they just reopened the Frozen show over at Walt Disney World. Now it is a truncated show. It is not the full show because they want to be able to have all the actors safe. So there's a lot of scenes that they had to kind of figure out how to redo. And then as far as the audience is concerned. It is only at about, I believe, 25% capacity. So there's only certain seats that you can take. Um, they're in sections of four, but you have that for your party. So if it's just you or just you and somebody else, 
it's two people in those four seats uh, that they have there. And that's, and that's how they're loading it up. I think the interesting thing was them having to redo the show. It's a shortened show, but for things to keep the actors safe as well too. So, and then the other thing I've seen, I did see not here in California, but I did see the seating arrangement for a concert um, in another state where they were doing uh, two seats, uh, empties, two seats, empties, two seats, empties. So, um, you know, and if you're one person and you don't, you didn't bring anybody, you're just going by yourself, then you're one person in two seats. So, uh, that's, that's how they were doing it. Um, again, you're still inside a building, so I don't know how far that's going to go apart like that, but, um, I did find it interesting. I did think the, the most interesting part was the way that they had to adjust the show to keep the actors safe. Okay. Emma? Um, I don't know if this counts as theater per se, because a lot of them have been pre-recorded, but on uh, Playbill and a couple other sites, they've got recordings of old, great theatrical productions that have been filmed, similar to Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, but for other shows as well. There's a ton of those. And then uh, I don't know if anyone actually is doing it, but I think it's a solid idea to do it. Um, if they can create bubbles for cast and crews of movies, I don't see why they can't do that for film, like for theater as well, and then shoot it and like put it online. I think there's definitely a space for that. I would totally watch that too, because to me, theater is theater. And, you know, like watching Hamilton, for example, and maybe I'm a little biased because it is my favorite musical of all time. And we were lucky enough to see it twice on Broadway. But um, for me, it was still the same experience watching it on, you know, on screen. I still felt the same emotions and I still got excited when my favorite musical numbers were coming out. So it was a great experience. So I could definitely see, you know, me watching Shows I'm going like to disagree with you on that one. I did enjoy watching it, but I had tickets for it in September, I which of course I don't know. now, but I've never seen it live. And there was that always that tinge of, man, I really wish that I could have been there in that theater for this. That always had a little bit of taste back there. Now, don't granted, they did a fantastic job with that production and yeah. it's great to watch. But if you've never seen it, it is a little bit of a, there's a slight bit of, oh, shit, I really wish I would have been there. I hear and that's why I kind of prefaced it with what I said, you know, be baby, because I have seen it. Like, I didn't feel like I was missing out as much. But obviously, it is definitely, it's not the same thing. It is a different experience seeing it on stage. But I just think they did such a great job executing it and shooting it that I felt like I was actually there at the theater. I agree. And I also think that there's a certain point at which you've got a really specific experience, Jill, because you did have a ticket to see it in person until all yeah. this happened. If yeah. it was like something that you, like, you just wouldn't have seen it anyway. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. Then, like, this is still something to see. Like, it's still a version of the show. Yeah, because um, it doesn't have the missed opportunity. I just want you guys to know that right now I should be in um, Rome. Uh, <laughs> I think that's that's what I'm about right now, but I'm not. I, I, I just, so, I just fuck you, coronavirus. <laughs> I just realized something. Wait, hold on, hold on. I, I just realized that you know when when Joe started talking that Joe, who never never really traveled anywhere like in the last few years, Joe, who didn't go to see a lot of a lot of theater shows, picked those two things, and then we had a pandemic. So I, I'm pretty sure Joe is Joe is somehow behind. So what this, should I pick next COVID. year, Pete? What do you want to get rid of? <laughs> Pete, do you want me to vote Republican? Join <laughs> <laughs> the Klan next year. <laughs> but so um, wait, oh, okay, can I just there was there's another yeah, yeah, thing yeah. that um I was actually reading about earlier that I totally forgot. Um, 
in New York, um, there's a place called the Park Avenue Armory, uh, which years ago used to be an actual armory. They used to keep a lot of um, military equipment in it. Um, and it's a gigantic space. And so there's a theater company that's, that's working out of it that's, that um, what they did was they, they did kind of proof of concept where they put out, um, I think it was almost a thousand um, chairs um, throughout, you know, as far back as like, it, it's, it's like the place is like gigantic. I can't explain how big it is, but it's really big. Um, but distancing each chair from each other. Um, and then they put on a show just to see if they could do it. And, it, and apparently um, the few people that were there found it to be okay. So they've been petitioning the city to allow them to do um, to, to do live shows, and apparently it's catch it's getting some kind of momentum um, where they're, they're, they've gotten at least the Blasio, and I don't know whether or not it's going to go any further than that. But I guess anything that they would do would have to also go through um, through the, the governor's office too. But um, but it might also be another option. I mean, non traditional spaces that were not considered to be theater spaces that are big enough to to have people uh, you know distance and still see a stage. So when the Tony nominations were announced today, it was a little surreal because in a normal year, by the time the nominations are handed down, there is already so much fan awareness of the shows playing on Broadway that the awards show has a pre-qualified audience. This year it doesn't. Will less people watch the Tonys this year than usual? And if so, should they be going through all the trouble to put on a show? I love the Tony Awards, but I think I, I am going to skip them this year because of this. Um, go ahead, Emma. So, like, nobody tuned in for the Emmys this year either. Um, yeah. I think the audience just isn't there for it. Um, so when it comes to should they put on a show, it, it comes down to, from a business perspective, like, I don't know, there's a bunch of shows that, like, could use the advertisement for when things theoretically do come back. Um I think it kind of depends also on what kind of show they're going to do. Are they going to do it out of like Radio City or The Beacon? I think no, that doesn't make show. enough financial sense the same way that they did the Emmys out of uh, the Staples Center. But, you know, if they just do a, a Zoom show or whatever, like, yeah, you know, it's not as expensive. Pete, did you say something? I, well, no, I, I think I think they're saying it's going to be a virtual show. And um, I definitely don't think people are going to are going to tune in the way they would have because you know, every year it seems like, well, especially for the last few years, there was always that one show um, that everybody was waiting to see, whether it be Hamilton or, or Dear Evan Hansen, um, where, where it was like, okay, you want to see that performance because they're the ones that are going to be anointed as this year's big big deal. Um, and and honestly, you know, it, I, I mean, I don't really even know that much about about any of the three shows. That are up. I mean, I know I know what I know, which is, one is one is a, a, a musical that has nothing to do with Alanis Morissette's Shaggy Little Pill, except for the fact that they're using the songs for it. Another one is about the life of Tina Turner, and the third one is Moulin Rouge, which was a movie. So I, I mean, I don't know if there's the same excitement. Now, on the other hand, they might as well do it. I, I mean, you know, it's again right now. I think people any any kind of escapism for people right now is worth it. I guess you know, and, and Emma's right. Less people watch the Emmy Awards. And I know when we did when we did the show prior to it, I, I remember talking about how dumb I thought it was, especially being at the uh, Staples Center. But they did a great job. Um, you know, it was and it was a good testament for, you know, when creative people get together, how they can actually make something work. 
And I'm sure that they'll do the same thing when it comes to the, to the Tonys. I mean, those those are some of the best performers in the world. So wait, why not? wait, wait, wait. Jagged Little Pill is not about Alanis Morissette. It has absolutely. I'm so nothing, disappointed. It has absolutely gonna nothing like, to do with. There's going to be a whole section with like Moose and Alois and her getting like slimed on. You can't do that on television. Not, there was going to be a great musical musical number where Dave Coulier gets a BJ in a theater. I mean, come on, this musical writes itself. Why aren't you doing this? Well, you, you know, they, they, they probably missed the golden opportunity, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> COVID. You COVID. <laughs> I tell you right now, if we were doing if we were doing a live TMI show, I would have written that sketch. <laughs> I know you would. Anything is probably a blowjob. Why not? Of course, so I have missed the golden opportunity. Sorry, golden opportunity, or they're making a whole lot more money because Jagged Little Pill already did pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then, then they can also do the story of Alanis Morissette. There's nothing saying they can't do both. That is true. Yeah, I think I think you're you're allowed one Alanis Morissette musical in, in a lifetime. I, I really? really? I'm not, I'm, yeah, I you know, I mean, I think there's room for two. Maybe not here, but in Canada. Yeah, maybe in two. Canada. But I, just, yeah, I mean, Alanis Morissette is a wonderful artist. But I, you know, really, Jagged Little Pill was one of those things where this is the best she's ever going to be, and it never got better than that. I mean, she did make some good music afterwards, but yeah, no, this this is the Temptations where. Where there was hits for the next twenty years. She played God, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I have one. Then I guess question. I'm wrong. <laughs> the last question: What do you think the long-term effect of the pandemic is going to be on the theater? And then, as a creative person, what are you hoping the effect will be? Joe. It's going to screw things up for a very long time. Not as much as I think live music. I think live music is really screwed, but I mean, it's going to, it's going to mess things up for, for a while. I mean, you think about it though. We t- we're talking about Broadway and Broadway is, is the pinnacle. Broadway is the top, but to get to Broadway, you were in a lot of little theaters, little tiny theaters. Uh, you know, you're, there's a lot of stuff and, and all of that is in shambles. So it's kind of like saying, yeah, we, we've got we've got Major League Baseball, but if all of the minor leagues and the farm teams are messed up, eventually minor league base, Major League Baseball is going to break down too because it doesn't have that system. You need to have, be, have that, that ability to build up. So I think that that's where it's going to be. I hope that everything turns out fine, mm-hmm. but we always talk about how there's a new normal now. So it's tough to say. We're going to have to get creative and figure things out. Um, who knows? Hey, Pete. Well, I think, you know, even though we kind of centered this toward Broadway, I think this kind of affects all theaters um, in the sense of, well, firstly, touring companies um, of major musicals are probably going to be limited to a few shows that are either old, older shows or, or like the biggest hit shows, again, being like the Hamiltons, because I don't think you're going to see a touring company version of Jagged Little Pill next year. Um, again, because it just doesn't have the name recognition yet. Now, um, so so the touring shows, you're going to see a lot of like your old shows again, maybe, you know, go, a Funny Lady or My my Fair anything with Lady in the title. West Side Story, which which I think they've already actually mounted one because I think they were doing it in, you know, because uh, Spielberg's movie was coming out. Um, but I think when you're talking about Broadway, you know, let's put it this way. If Let's say Lin-Manuel Miranda wasn't Lin-Manuel Miranda. If he went to a producer and said, I've got this great idea for a musical about, uh, about Alexander Hamilton, that's not getting made right now. Um, it's it's going to be more of the jukebox musicals. It's going to be more of 
star driven stuff because again it's kind of like it, it's kind of like movies when movie when 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 movies aren't doing well what do they do they push everything to the tent poles to the big movies to the to the blockbusters because they know that's where the money is so for some period of time i think that's what you're going to see with 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 broadway i think it's just going to be the stuff they know is going to work okay emma uh, so two things. One is the question asked about after the pandemic, not like a year from now. So we're talking about after like people are going back to the theater again and after, like all that stuff already anyway. Uh, secondly, people have been saying for literally centuries that theater is dying and it never quite does. People love going out to live performances. We always have. It's part of the human experience. It goes all the way back to like several thousand years BC ago. Uh, so there's always going to be something. There will be changes. A lot of small theaters can't keep up their leases. Like they can't keep paying rent because they don't have any money coming in. So a lot of those are going to close down. Right. And like, it's going to be harder for certain shows. But people don't do theater because they make a lot of money at it. Something like 98% of productions never make, like they lose money. Mm -hmm. uh, people do it because they love it. And when you love it, you'll find a way to do it. I've done shows in Central Park before, just like on a field. People will find ways to put productions up and then eventually producers will find stuff that has, you know, that extra it factor, whatever mm -hmm. it was that made, you know, Hamilton so great and Jervin Hansen so great and all the shows that aren't jukebox musicals and aren't uh, adaptations of movies. They're going to find a way to find those and they're going to get produced. And they're going to make a lot of money. It's going to come back. It, you know, it'll be different, but it'll be there. Okay. So our guest tonight, John Aiden Byrne, is an award-winning journalist who has written for the New York Post, Wall Street Journal, the National Catholic Register, and many other publications. He's also the creator and host of the podcast, Life on Planet Earth. Please welcome our guest, John Aiden Byrne. John, can you hear me okay? Hi. This is always the worst question. <laughs> I always have to check. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Hi, John, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. Well, how are you doing tonight? Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm honored. I'm flattered. I just joined that Audrey group and I got your invitation. So kind of you. Oh, well, thank you. You're a happy lot of people. <laughs> well, thank you again. We we're really happy. You're, you're, you're a Hollywood, com Hollywood comedy, right? Yes, uh-huh, yes, I'm that's what I think on the night, we don't I know mean, how funny it actually is. Uh, comedy is, uh, <laughs> that's, uh... We like to believe we're comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we think we're funny, anyway. but that, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> subjective. <laughs> Very objective. <laughs> so, John, your bio gives us so many areas to cover, and we'd love to pick your brain and also talk about your podcast tonight. So we just finished a conversation about the Tony nominations, which were announced today, and what the future of Broadway might look like. I understand that you also have a background in theater. So as someone who writes about New York and economics, what do you think the long-term effects of the pandemic are going to be on Broadway, in your opinion? Well, I was listening on radio this morning to um, a Broadway critic who has been forelocked from his job as a writer for a well-known publication. Um, there, it could be very much late into next year before Broadway comes back. Um, I think it'll come roaring back like a lot of businesses mm -hmm. um, because it's an integral 
central part of Manhattan life and culture, I think people are just waiting to snap up all those tickets. But there's been immeasurable losses um, on the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have um, suffered uh, great losses of income. Uh, I expect there's going to be some terrific scripts out there uh, when it comes back. I'm sure, you know, it will reflect the pain and suffering that we've all gone through. Mm -hmm. And I understand there's been some virtual production, so it's not entirely gone away. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's also been a lot of discussion about a mass exodus of people from New York City. Is that real? And is that something that might hurt the city long term? That exodus from New York City has been ongoing for the last decade. And New York goes through all these ups and downs and periods. New York City was bankrupt, what, uh, 40 years ago. People were moving out in mass. There was riots in the Bronx 40, 50 years ago. People moved out, uh, moved out of state, moved to the suburbs. This current exodus is fueled by COVID-19 the lockdowns, um, and the fact that a lot of people, middle-class people in particular, have discovered they can take their laptops to the suburbs or to South Southern Carolina or Vermont and do their work from home. So that's kind of um, encouraging an awful lot of us. And of course, we know the notorious high cost of living in New York um, is exacerbating it too. You talk to any of the moving companies and they will tell you and they've been on record saying they've never been as busy really mm -hmm. hey we're in la we know about that high cost of living <laughs> <laughs> so, so john so like i told you in head, my head head to the hills <laughs> oh we can't they're on fire <laughs> oh my god yeah. just get a fire hose <laughs> I'm too far to travel. I'd come down with the fire truck. <laughs> so, John, like I told you in my email to you, we are a fairly liberal group and we live in what we would be best described as a liberal bubble in Los Angeles. So it's always good to hear from someone outside our own echo chamber. So you write for two Rupert Murdoch-owned publications, the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, which are very conservative-leaning. Do you find that there is a bias against the conservative media? And if so, do you think that any of it is warranted? What are your thoughts on that? I think it works on both sides of the aisle. I think there's a bias by those on the uh, liberal side against you know, the conservative side and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an entirely polarized nation. The globe is polarizing. I, I mean, I have to yet travel to Africa, but I I suspect just reading articles and about lifestyles in Africa, it's, it's not as polarized. And so you kind of wonder what's causing those cra cracks in the foundation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of problems in America. There's a lot of problems in, in Europe, uh, mountains of debt. Um, the 24-7 news cycle certainly exacerbates things. Um, you know, if you look at Recent history in America, economic and social, uh, you know, there's been an incredible loss of vitality in flyover country, if you will. Um, 
they've many you know a lot of these towns you if you do a if you do a road trip from New York to LA and you go through some of those small and large towns they you hear the same story in many places the jobs are all gone they 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 the manufacturing facility it's gone you know two generations of families haven't had jobs uh, we're on welfare um you know uh, there's opioid addiction mass depression so i think some of that the economic dislocation has fueled a lot of the um political divide in america um and it's quite telling that Trump's greatest support is in the heartland. It's not in New York or in L.A., in some of the most deprived areas in America. Um, but to answer your question directly, yeah, there is a lot of bias against conservative media. I advise people and some a practice I engage in myself and, and media people have to do this or they're not uh, on their game is, you know, toggle between you know, left-leaning shows on cable and right-leaning shows, read all the Wall Street Journal, New York Post. I, I love to actually listen to NPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's very um, well-researched and well-reported programming. I don't agree with all the positions. I strongly disagree with some of their positions. But I like the soothing tones of NPR, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with a lot of Sean Hannity's positions, but it's a, it's a screech fest. Um, so I have to give NPR uh, let me get to sleep at night if I'm having any insomnia. <laughs> uh, Joe, I think you want to say something. Go yeah, ahead. right up uh, the back, because uh, all of us here, while we are all in L.A. in that bubble, but almost all of us here grew up in the New York City area. Um, oh. But, but well, like, yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 years ago, though, I mean, it, I lived in New Jersey, Pete lived in all these guys. But like you jumped on the train and you saw what newspaper somebody was reading and you kind of knew where they were, whether they had the Post or the Times or whatnot. You know, you kind of got an idea what they were. But everybody was really <laughs> kind of nice and civil. And, you know, I had a great neighborhood and stuff like that, no matter what it is. It just seems that like, and I'm not even going to say four years, but I mean, like the last eight, maybe some of that. Things have gotten really, really kind of crazy. Like people are really, really don't like each other, you know, on the whole thing. Like I said, when we were growing up, hey, you had a difference of opinion, but that was fine. You were still a cool guy. Um, Where do you think that came from? Where do you think that that is? Because I think it's a lot. I see it. It's a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like people are a lot angrier at each other and they don't want to talk to each other. And um, where did that come from? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's sort of like it's an existential crisis. There's a, a societal angst or something out there. Um, you know, there's this great uh, malaise, social malaise. And I, I think a lot of people are unhappy. Um, I, I think there's a lot, a, a lot of a lot of the arguments you hear sometimes um, from far left liberals I wonder, does it well up from some place inside them that speaks more to themselves as opposed to the environment they're challenging? Um, You know, they're targeting the wrong things. Um, But it's a good question. I've wondered about that. Families, not our family, we we all, we love each other in this family. (laughs) 
I can see you guys get on so well too. Um, but you know the old joke about uh, the last couple of years having your the uh, family gatherings at Thanksgiving. You know, if you want it to end peacefully, don't bring up politics because it'll just end in bloodshed. I mean, that to me is a very odd, curious thing because it's not a very intelligent and reasonable way to advance political discourse because unless we exchange ideas like we're doing you can't reach conclusions and uh i mean you see that playing out in the halls of congress um you see it in civic organizations um and as you said you know you're a target if you're reading the new york post uh, or the you know daily news which still exists or the New York Times, you know, two deeply uh, polarized versions of the news, which is another strange thing. If you brought somebody in from a country that, you know, was not familiar with our cable networks and programming, um, and most of these shows are global now anyway, so that would be um, a very unusual situation. But you, you put them in front of uh, CNN news for half hour or one of the talk shows and then say, hey, switch over to watch Fox. It's like two different, it's like cognitive, what do they call it? Cognitive dissonance, right. you know, two versions of reality. So that's kind of worrying uh, because you wonder are facts being escaping here mm-hmm. or being uh, massaged? Um, are people getting the full story? And they deserve to get the full story. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, Pete. Um, thank you for, for coming on first. Um, I wanted to kind of ask something along the lines of what you were you were saying. It, it, obviously, we do live in a very polarized time right now. And, and, and it's, it's not one side or the other. It's obviously both. Uh, do you think, this is actually going to be a two-part question. Do you think that the upcoming election is going to resolve any of that or make it worse? Um, and then I'll, I'll ask the second part afterwards. But yeah, that's probably my first question. Um, I was uh, out shopping yesterday and I had a fascinating conversation um, with a professional gentleman um, who wasn't forelocked, but he was sidelined in his job from medical issues or whatever. So he obviously had a lot of time to think about America and politics and so on and so forth. Um, He was a very bright guy and you could see he followed news he said to me, and I'm just wondering, are there other stories like this? He says, after this election, I'm out of America, he said. I'm either going to Canada or New Zealand. You can't go on the street without somebody taking a gun at you, you know. Um, he was deeply concerned about the aftermath of, of, of this election. Um, I don't know. I mean, you it's impossible, despite all the polling, to predict the outcome of the election because it's complicated and uh, a, a handful of votes could swing it in some of these, um, you know, Pennsylvania, Florida, and the swing states. Um, so we don't know the outcome. And there's private polling, which cons- contradicts the, you know, the polling that we're seeing in, in, in the national um, media. Um, I don't know. One part of me thinks that if, for example, Joe Biden got a landslide, maybe that would quell things, or if uh, Trump got, came out with a landslide victory, that would 
settle matters, you know, for the next four years. But mo- a lot of people, nobody's predicting, you know, a landslide. They're thinking there's going to be a narrow victory on either side. Mm. Um, no, I think we're going to be back to the same old, same old. I, 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 I think if, if Trump gets back in, and it, that's, we don't know, um, I think there'll be attempts to impeach him again, perhaps, um, to say the whole uh, election was rigged or there was photo suppression or whatever. Um, if Biden gets in, yeah, maybe it's fair game. Maybe maybe the Republicans will pick up that mantle and you know hammer the, the Democrats and say it was stolen from us. But I don't think the uh, I, I I don't some part of me doesn't feel that uh, will quieten the animal here. So that actually kind of leads me into the second part of the question. Um, this morning I was watching uh, before they started the hearings again for Amy Coney Barrett this morning. Um, the Democrats used the maneuver to, to actually have a conversation uh, with, within the whole, um, the whole committee, um, where, where I guess Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a Democrat from Rhode Island, said something which, which to me felt like it was the roadmap for the next, for the next Congress in the event that the polls are correct and that there is this blue wave uh, that's potentially out there. He, he essentially said that the politics of doing something just because you can, it doesn't mean that you should do that. And, and, and his whole argument was that if Republicans push forward with, with this nomination when we're now 19 days before the election, um, they should not, they should understand that the politics because you can, can be used against them. And that they, and, and what he actually said, which was really kind of chilling in a way was that, it, that the idea that you can, can't say that dies on this floor right now. Um, but So essentially what he was saying was that you do this, we're going to do that when, when the election is over if, if uh, the, the Democrats take control. What, what, I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, obviously you could blame both sides in certain ways for, for a lot of the issues that we're, that we're having, but clearly uh, Trump is, is a megaphone for, uh, for, for a lot of people that are uh, disgruntled about the way the world works. If he's no longer a voice, um, you know, from the, you know, as far as like, or at least he's not the, the main voice of, a, of the party. Do you think that if the, if the Democrats were then to lower their rhetoric and not do some of the things which they potentially could do, could that be a pathway to trying to um, to see some some of the polarization kind of come down a little bit? That's a really interesting question. Um... It's hard to tell. Trump, by nature, is a disruptor. And, um, you know, he broke away from the pack and to, to, to drain the swamp, uh, to use uh, the language um, of the day. Um, if Trump disappears, maybe there'll be Trump Mark II um, would rise up. Um, I don't think on balance it will lower the tone and make things a lot more civil. Um, I think they're so far apart. Um, The Democratic Party is pretty much eclipsed by the uh, far left, the AOC and the, um, you know, the green climate advocates and, um, you know, the, 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 the group that wants you know, shake up corporate America and major reform and banking um, 
and uh, you know tax deals for millennials and and so on and so forth. Um, I think there will be enough opposition and strong opposition, even if Trump is not there, uh, to 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 keep the temperature very high. But it would be interesting to see things come down a notch or two, so that could people could have you know more civil debates. See, I, I think I, I just want to go back again. To, I'm sorry if I'm monopolizing too much of the time, but um, I want to go back to something you just said. You, you, were, you were saying that that the, the Democratic Party is monopolized mostly by the um, by, by the far left. If that were the case, why is Joe Biden the nominee? Uh, I mean, you know, I know that's an argument that's been made a lot of times, and I think to some extent, at least from what I my opinion is that it's kind of fear mongering. But I, I mean, where is there even like evidence that the far left is actually um, the people running the Democratic Party? I, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is not far left. She's she, she's a centrist who, who happens to just be, you know, pretty good at what she does. Um, and she's going against another very good um, far, you know, more centrist Republican in, in Mitch McConnell. Um, and Joe Biden is about as centrist as you can get. Um, so I don't really understand where do you, where do you get the idea that, that it's it, that the party is run by the far left? Well, I mean it's true. Traditionally, Joe Biden was centrist, and uh, you know if you go back long enough in his career, there was plenty of common ground between what Joe Biden stood for and what latter day Republicans now stand for. But if you look at how he's shifted his ground, he's co opted many of those. Um, positions of the far left uh, into his um, platform. Um, is it Joe Biden himself, uh, how he would have done it if he was able to have a blank s- s- slate and then, you know, lay out his, his own personal agenda? I, I think, that you know, I, don't, I think there would be some conflict there, but he has co-opted a lot of those positions. Um and he probably has was has no choice but do that, so that he can present himself to the larger Democratic base. So, if he gets three hundred and seventy-five or three hundred and fifty electoral votes, does that mean that the country is looking for more of a far-left um, agenda than they're looking for a far-right agenda now? Well, that would be the that would be the intriguing thing. And some people, pundits and 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 analysts, have speculated that no, he might just. Uh, move back into the centre to to bring the country back together. Uh, you know, the far left is, has a lot of advocates in the party and we're AOC and, and all that group. Um, so they will, and they are the upcoming um, face of the Democratic Party. Um, millennials are a very big factor. They want to appeal to the, to, to the millennial vote. Um, I, I suspect that won't happen. I think, I think he will keep positions that we would regard uh, as to the far left. I, I think he'll adopt those positions. Well, but do you think that the people, if, 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 if it was, again, obviously we don't know what the final results are going to be, but there's at least a legitimate chance, according to what everything you're seeing, um, polling-wise and also enthusiasm-wise as far as the amount of ballots that are coming back, um, the amount of registrations. I mean, when you see when you see a mile long line in Texas on the first day of voting, that's not Republicans doing it. I mean, 
they just that's they, they they don't do that. They go out on election day. It's always been that way. So if so if Biden were to win a, a, a an overwhelming victory, not a three hundred and six electoral vote victory, which Trump did, um, would that be some kind of a advocation for the idea that, that that you know maybe the country moving more far left is something that the people are wanting wanting right now? Uh... Yes, I think so. I think I think that there's a good. Um, the people may want it. Um, I think he'll. Um, yeah, I think the answer is yes, straightforward. Um, uh, but I mean, that's very hypothetical and and Actually, highly unlikely, of course. of course. But it's an interesting question to present. Um, I think most of the democratic voter base, uh, I, again is far left with a, a small rump of centrists. So he was go- he's going to have to manage and integrate that. And he'll put his finger in the air and see, see which way the political winds are blowing. Okay. okay. I'm going to take one more question and then I want to talk about your podcast. Um, Joe. Okay. Well, let's take this from the other side because I'm really interested in this. Uh, before we had the pandemic, I took a nice little trip up to Santa Barbara and I visited the uh, Reagan Ranch Museum. Um, and there's a group uh, that is uh, running that. And it's mostly Reagan Republicans. I actually had a really great sit down to talk with them. And a lot of them really don't like the Trump end of the party. While they are diehard Republicans, they don't like that that, that end of the party. They, don't kind of, they kind of don't like the nastiness, I would say, of it. Or, you know, like, like it's a, like, and I can see that because Reagan was, for all you could say about it, he he came across very homey, very civil, like that. Whether you agree with him or not, and let's face it, it's California, so the majority of Republicans that are out here are Reagan-esque Republicans. Um, do you think that 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 um, we would see the party kind of turn back, or do you think it's still going to be very kind of a? Because I see it as, as a lot of people being very vitriol. Um, and I, I believe me, I, I like the Republicans a lot more when that Reagan has kind of, at least we're going to try and, 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 and put a, a hand out. Do you think that that's going to change at all? In what sense though, if, if the, that the party it, will regroup and the, yeah. go back to its traditional roots yes. and, and, and t- present a more Reagan-esque, uh, face? Yes. Uh, there's a lot of people are sure hoping so, including Mitt Romney and 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 company. Um, I don't know if we got a little sneak preview, although he's hardly a good carbon copy. Uh, Mike Pence came somewhat close to being a kind of a a gentlemanly um, Midwestern gentleman in the Reagan fashion, um, polite, um, certainly much more command actually of detail than Reagan, but that's why we didn't necessarily vote in Reagan because of command of detail, although he had brilliant command effects. Um, not sure if the country's ready for that. I, I, there's so much vitriol, uh, so much anger. There's a social depression out there. I, I think some people don't know what they're even angry about. Um, maybe Reagan belonged to a different time, but it'd be certainly nice. Regan, Regan had friends on both sides of the aisle. He was very chummy with Tip O'Neill, the Democratic powerhouse in Boston. Um, he was very 
popular, even though he did shut down a lot of the um, air traffic control union workers. We know that. Um, but he had a lot of friends in the labor movement and uh, he united the country. And we and he, he showed the best of what is uh, good about America and captured its soul and essence. It would be great to see another Regan back. I don't know if it's going to happen. So, John, I want to talk about your podcast, Life on Earth. Can you tell Life us- Life on Planet Earth. Oh, Life on Planet Earth, excuse me. Can you tell you. us and listeners a little bit about it? Well, it. I started it uh, with encouragement from friends and peers. They said, John, get into this podcast business. And I said, sure, it sounds great. But, you know, they, there's a lot of friction, as somebody said, in it, the whole technical side, which I don't consider myself, uh, you know, a technical whiz, but brought in some some help in engineers. We got that up off the ground. Um, I saw an opportunity to feature guests who I run into and meet and I'm introduced to during the course of my, you know, reporting week and so on. People who I don't have a chance to turn into print stories. I says, gee, this would be so great. I'm getting, you know, a call from Washington or I'm getting a call from, you know, some PR firm that reps, you know, represents this actor or some authors or whatever. So I said, this is it. I'm going to do it. And I sort of took my own unique angle and um, I featured authors. I uh, featured, um, I have to look up, go through the litany. There's so many of them now, but he was a speechwriter for um, James Mattis. Um, I interviewed uh, Jen Lilly of, um, at Hallmark. Um, just a new book out by um, Rod Dreher, uh, Live Not By Lies. I interviewed him on my most recent podcast. Jeffrey um, Robinson, he wrote the bestseller, uh, The Laundry Men, had him on. Um, I've had uh, Frank King, who was a comedy writer for Jay Leno. Um, you know, just on and on. Um, uh, I had some, I, the producer on for the recently launched the Black Effect, David Black, the producer. He, um, he, uh, he, he came on to the show as well. So I used all these, uh, you know, opportunities to interview. I also had, um, Alexander McCobbin, he's CEO of Conscious, uh, Conscious Capitalism and Rob Weldron of Curriculum Associates. We had them on. Uh, Emily Conrad, um, she wrote about the Electoral College. She'd be a great guest to have on here. Uh, filmmaker David Greenwald, I have to correct that. He he produced The Black Effect. I knew I got that one wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Will Cogan of the American Security Inst- Institute. Commander Guy Snodgrass, U.S. Navy fighter, and he was a former defense writer for former defense secretary James Mattis, a law professor who wrote a bestseller, and so on and on and on. So they were people I just couldn't get into print. So I said, I'm going to put them on my podcast. Okay, that's great. And where can people listen to your podcast? Um, It's on Spotify, Google, um, you know, all the good places, Stitcher, uh, Breaker, um, Anchor, all the places where they, they they host podcasts. So it's Life on Planet Earth, John Aiden Byrne. And uh, if they want to reach out to me, uh, burndesk at gmail.com. Okay, 
Okay, and we also put the information about your podcast on well, screen. Well, thank you so kindly. Yeah, well, thank you, John, so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'd love to have you back again. If you come, on I want to come back. If you come on a Friday, we'll have a pint and we'll talk about everything but politics. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and I get it. Politics today. We'll do that. And I want to have one of you guys on my podcast soon. Oh, oh we'd love, we'd love or, to. or the five of you. We figure it out. We'd love to <laughs> keep up the good work, John. Come back to New York. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so I don't know who picks national days, but today is one I agree with. It's National I Love Lucy Day, a day to celebrate everything Lucy. Although Lucy and Ricky will certainly go down as many people's favorite TV couple, we thought it would be fun to ask each person to pick their favorite couple from TV history. So who wants to start picking their favorite TV couples? Okay, I'll start. <laughs> All right. How dare you? So being the sitcom junkie that I am, it was really hard to pick. Um, Pete actually said one that I was thinking about. Pete, do you want to say what you were talking I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I've got a, another one. Okay, well, so for me, I think one of my favorite comedy uh, TV couple is Jeff and Susie Green from Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I love them. I just think they're amazing. And from one of my favorite shows, Parenthood, um, Peter Krause and Monica Potter, uh, Adam and Christina Braverman. I absolutely love them as a couple, and I think they're just amazing, and they're like couple goals. So, And, of course, Lucy and Ricky, my favorite sitcom of all time. So those are mine. Okay, Pete, how about you? Well, I went through a whole bunch in my head. Um, I, I, I love uh, – well, One Years is my favorite show, so I, I love uh, – uh, Norma and Jack Arnold, um, but they're not, they're not the main focus of the show. Um, your Steve and Elise on, uh, on family ties is great, but when, when you really want to get down to the bottom line on, on TV couples, you got to go with, with, with Mike and Carol Brady. I, I mean, there's, there really is nobody else because every other couple after them, um, was, was some kind of weird variation on them. And, 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 and I think, uh, I, I think that you know what there was a lot of underlying text in, the, in those shows that we, we that maybe we still don't even catch about their relationship. But let's just say I think Mr. Brady got it in on. Just saying. Okay. Oh, I forgot to mention a Mitch and Cam too from Modern Family. I think they're a great couple. Okay, Joe, what about you? You know, I've been thinking about this for a while too, and I was going to go with 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 uh, Hawkeye and BJ, and I had a couple of other ideas because technically those guys were a couple, but. Um, listen, when it goes down to when I was thinking about it, and then you also think of longevity too, I got to go with Homer and Marge Simpson, uh, through <laughs> everything that they've gone through, those two stick together. Um, and obviously they're doing something really great, great. Cause they don't age. Um, and every single week they, they make me laugh for how many years now? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Are we going on 30 something years or something? Whatever. It's it, it's crazy. What? 89 so 31 years yeah 31 years so i mean i i really can't think of a couple that's lasted as long as tv other than that so that i'm gonna go with homer march okay how about you emma so i went way more controversial with mine um <laughs> <laughs> and how dare some you? people are gonna fight me because like they they technically weren't a couple but like they were clearly building up to something before they realized they had to end the series rachel and joey were so much better than rachel and ross 
and I will yeah. fight anyone on this because oh, Joey yeah. was there for her. He cared about her as a person, not just about her as like a sexual object. He wasn't constantly trying to defend himself against something that he did to hurt her. Like that never happened. He just loved her for her and then respected her when she said no, as opposed to Ross, who was constantly just like trying to defend himself, was constantly self-conscious. It was all about him. She got off the plane for Ross. She threw away her career for him. That is some dumb bullshit. Joey was a much better choice. I will stand Rachel and Joey till the end of time. Did you date? <laughs> Did you date David Schwimmer at some point? <laughs> it sounds like you have no. a with him. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I would date Joey any day of the week. Well, know. he didn't move out to LA. Right. That's how. Yeah, that's that why you came out. Happened, so it's not impossible. Uh, see, I love Ross. I have to disagree with you, Emma, on that one. They were on a break. <laughs> I mean, they were on a break. <laughs> he I hurt mean, her. Really. He really? hurt her and he never they acknowledged were on that. A break. <laughs> to be honest with you, the best couple in there was Monica and Chandler. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they, like they're the ones that, that they're going to make it. <laughs> yes. But that's not as fun to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pete was saying to me before the show, he says this would be a fun bracket to do because it's so hard. It's so hard to pick because there's so many great couples. Like I just thought of the, of the Ropers on Three's Company. Helen and Stanley, they were always like bickery with each other, but deep down, you know, they really cared about each other. So it's like, there's just too many. Well, too I mean, you got Bewitched. Yeah. Uh, uh, or or like, I Dream a Genie and things like that. So, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff to go on. I was kind of, uh, but I, I, you know, we all pick what we pick. But there's mm -hmm. plenty that go, well, you could go a whole episode on just that. On just TV couples, yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe we will. Maybe we will oh, do something after the election. We still Wait, but Elizabeth has to be on the show. <laughs> we yeah, have to do the brackets. I think when we get through the country burning down between the, the, the second and like the 10th, we're going to have to do something with the rest of the month because the show is going to about the, the, the second week of December. So we're going to have to find something to do all day. So uh, yeah, that, that's probably what we're going to do. Okay, so I guess we will see you back here again tomorrow at 6 p.m. We will be doing a recap of both town halls, and we will also be joined by the host of the podcast, DocuTalk, a podcast about Netflix documentaries. So oh, I'm excited about that one. Documentary, so it's going to be a fun show tomorrow. It won't be a Trump-free Friday, but it's going to be a good show. So until tomorrow, we'll see you back here at 6 p.m. Bye, everyone. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.